Thank you, Tom. And uh, you notice, uh, you notice, you have noticed, and you will notice uh, some of our youth participating in the service today, uh, serving us. And the reason we did that is because we're going to be confirming and baptizing in the second service, and we wanted this service to be able to see those folks up here and some of the some of the ones who will take those steps of faith in the next service. So that's one of the many reasons this is a joyful Sunday. Uh, in addition to being Palm Sunday and just being a Sunday at all. Uh, but it's been such a joy, and you should be proud of the students who are taking these steps and all that you've done to help raise them, to help nurture them in the faith. Uh, I was visiting with a seminary student this week in Dayton, Ohio, from South Korea. And he told me the story, as he told me the story about how he came back to Christ after growing up in a Methodist church in Korea and then running away from his faith and saying, I just can't believe all that stuff. And then when he came back to the faith and then was called into the ordained ministry and went to seminary to pursue that calling, what he kept telling me about over and over again were the prayer meetings back home. He said, you know, when I wandered off or whatever, my mom told me years later, she said, you know, son, when you did that, we started a 1,000-day prayer meeting for you in that time. And I'm thinking, I can't even count that high, that number of days. I can't get out of bed that well that many days in a row. Here they are having these prayer meetings every day for a 1,000 days, praying for things like this. And that's one of the roles that the church plays. When we see people grow up and receive the faith that we passed on to them, when they become the new guardians of the faith, when we see that happen, it's largely a result of the prayers of the church, the people that have labored behind the scenes to make faith a reality, to make faith possible, to give us joy in believing. We can all remember those people who did that for us. And so we enjoy and in turn begin to serve others in that way. So never doubt the efficacy of your prayers and of the simple and humble things that you do to nurture faith in others. This week in the news, there was an article about a school in Florida, uh, the Florida School for Boys, which started around the turn of the 20th century and was supposed to be a place for Boys that had gotten in a little bit of trouble for them to kind of rehab and get their lives back on track. And what brought them kind of back in the news is there was some construction work going on and then some archaeological work going on, and they discover what they think are the remains of additional graves, more than what they already knew about. And so they're looking at this school again. It's back in the news as this place that was supposed to be a safe haven for people recovering, and it turned out to be a place of brutality where kids were beaten, where kids suffered, where they were chained up, where they were deprived of basic necessities, and in many cases where they were killed. And this strikes me as an important reminder, not because we don't see horrible things like this in the news all the time, but because sometimes we forget that these things are as old as the human race, that things aren't getting worse, and we're not any worse off now than we were when we were kids, that sort of thing. These kinds of 
atrocious things have been happening since we have been people. While this is nothing new, what comes around regularly as something new is the fact that in the midst of a world where these kinds of things could happen, there is a king who has worked and continues to work to set these things straight. To make sure that once and for all, one day, these stories will not be told anymore. Those stories will not be the headlines in the newspaper. The gravity of our brokenness does not keep God away. It's a miracle. Whether it's things that we bring upon ourselves or things that we find ourselves in because of the result of other people's actions, the gravity of our brokenness does not keep God away. Our king comes to us in humility. As Tom said, getting at the root of our prideful problem. This story is, is fascinating to me every year. I just love all the festivity of the children and the palm branches and the audacity to have joy in worship at a king who has come to save us. Jesus starts this journey. You know, he's been talking about the cross. He's been telling his disciples about Jerusalem, that he must go to Jerusalem and be handed over to sinful men, that he must suffer and, on, and then die, and on the third day rise again, and people are slow to pick up the story. They're just they're thinking, no, Jesus, you're not that kind of a king. You're, I mean, you're the one that's here to save us. You're going to overthrow this awful, oppressive government, and you're going to make us the champions again. We know that you're the one to do it. You're the Son of God. You're the king. And Jesus continues to take humble steps towards Jerusalem, just as he said he would, teaching along the way telling stories about fig trees and tenants of farms and landowners, people who make investments. So they draw near to Bethpage and Bethany on the mount that is called Olivet. They move from desert terrain to a more lush, seemingly productive terrain. And he sends two of his disciples ahead, as is their custom. Remember, this very often happens. Jesus will send a couple of people and send them out to do ministry. It's always a good reminder that we were never created to be in, in uh, be followers of Christ as solo people. And we certainly don't engage in acts of ministry solo, but we're created to do this as a team, as, as groups. And so these two disciples go ahead, and Jesus says, Go in the village in front of you, and entering you will find a colt tied up on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying this colt? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. I love this story. I don't know if Jesus, you know, Jesus spent time at Bethany. We know that from the gospel stories. So I don't know if he made arrangements with the owner of this colt. Or if he just figured, hey, I know there's going to be a colt here because there's always a colt here. And let's just see what happens. You tell him that the master, the Lord has need of it. And... They'll turn it over to you. I don't know how that worked out. We don't know if this was a donkey like we see a donkey or if this is just a young horse or what we would call a pony. It'd be kind of tough if it was a young horse that had never been ridden to then send the disciples to get it for Jesus to hop on. And we don't think of Jesus as a bronc buster. But, you know, 
some, it's, it's just a fun story to think about. How did all this work out? And we make the connection to a donkey because of the prophecy in Zechariah, right? Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This crazy image of a king who comes in splendor on the back of a donkey or on the back of a young colt, however it is, it's, it's not the triumphant, seasoned, muscled out war horse that we would expect the king to ride in on. It's a simple, basic, somewhat untrained animal. And that's how Jesus meets us. That's how he walks into town to confront the darkness and brokenness that surrounds us. So, Luke goes on to tell us how the story shakes out. The disciples don't get arrested for trying to steal somebody's horse, uh, but it actually goes as Jesus planned it. Those who were sent went away and they found just as he told them. They were untying the colt. The owner said, just as Jesus, Jesus said he would, why are you untying the colt? And they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they began to throw their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on the colt, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, the, the disciples are getting it. They know that something royal is happening. There's a couple of things. He's sitting on the colt, and it's very important that the king is on a colt that's not been ridden before. It makes the connection to a king, not just another day to ride into town. And as he's drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? The Psalm 118, this is what they sang. When, they were, when pilgrims were heading into Jerusalem to worship, I mean, this is the feast of all feasts. This is the Passover. They're making plans. They're going in, and they're singing their victory song. Right? This is your, you know, when you're when you're processing from the tailgate to the game and people just start breaking out singing the fight song, or when you're walking around after you've won some big victory and people break out and we are the champions. This is their celebration song. Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Right? Just like the angels are crying out when Jesus is born. Peace. David came into town as a victorious king. And David came in after having conquered and become a king in many ways through war. Jesus comes in with peace. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. One of the striking things to me about this story is the seeming contrast between a statement like the Lord has need of it and then, oh, well, if the disciples don't praise, then the stones will do it. You know, on one hand, it makes it seem like we've got a pretty important job and the Lord needs stuff from us. 
And on the other hand, it makes it seem like, hey, well, if we don't do our job, you know, he can get that from the rocks. So maybe we don't have that big of a role to play after all. And as I've been thinking about this confirmation day and day of baptisms and what it's like to stand before people and be identified as Christians, to say, you know, for all the ways I could go in my life, I'm going to choose this way. My parents raised me up this way, but it's my choice now. I can walk away. There are so many other belief systems in the world that's staggering. But I'm going to choose this belief system where our king makes his great procession into town on a colt. Humbly. People laying down their cloaks. I just love this idea that the Lord has need of it. We know that God doesn't need us like we need things. God is, is not bound by the things that we're bound by, time and space, food and water. God doesn't need us in that sense. But in carrying out God's plan, his master plan of salvation, he has chosen in his wisdom to involve us, to give us work to do, to give us gifts for ministry, to put it before us that I've given you a relationship, a family, a job, something that you can use to be heralds of this kingdom where the one who sits on a throne is known in this humble way. The pressure in that sense, when I think about these compromands and the baptismal candidates, the pressure is on. You know, you're, you're handed things. We, we are the guardians of the faith. We, it's, it's not the generation before us anymore. Wherever we are in whichever generational line, somebody handed that baton to us. And it's our job to be the guardians of the faith. And in that sense, we feel that pressure. Hey, the pressure's on. The Lord has need of it. The Lord has placed us here. But I think you don't get the full joy of the disciple unless you hold that intention with, but hey, you know what? When we stumble and fall, and when we fail to open our mouths, God is capable of raising up praise from the rocks. You know, in parenting or in coaching or teaching, it seems like we apply this same type of rubric. You want enough pressure where people know that they should grow, where there's an expectation, and you expect to get the best out of them that they have based on the raw materials that you have to work with. But then you also have to let them know from time to time that the pressure's off, that the whole thing, the whole enterprise of the whole world doesn't ride on you, one person. So the rise and fall of a sports team, the rise and fall of a class, the rise and fall of a business never rides just on one person. But you want that one person to feel the weight, the burden, the joy of having work to do that's important. Work to do that's important. Because if none of this mattered, none of us would be here. If it was all just about kick back and let the rocks do it, we certainly wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. So the pressure's on, and then again, the pressure's off. We kind of wrap up by looking at the tone of the disciples as they welcome this unique king, as they welcome their master, their lord, their king, 
into town. They, they lay their cloaks down. There's people waving palm branches. And they're crying out in a loud voice. They're rejoicing because of everything that they've seen. Why joy? Why is there so much joy when Jesus, the true king, comes to town? Why is joy such a characterizing mark for Christians in the world? Why do we see it so much in our scriptures? Rejoice in the Lord always, right? Again, I say rejoice. Don't, don't be hung up with anxiety. But as was prayed earlier, offer thanks, offer gratitude, be filled with joy. From the time that we're born, we long for God. St. Augustine said it this way, you know, 1600 years ago, that, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We, we were created with this innate hunger and thirst, this longing for the God that created us, because he loved us. And when that desire, when that longing begins to be met, just little by little, bit by bit, or when we're with all the rest of the disciples and something big happens, it produces joy. And if you've known me very long, I can be characterized as a grumpy old man pretty fast. So I have to ask myself this question. You know, why is joy such a characteristic mark of the disciple? At least one of the answers is because it's a characteristic mark of God. God is a joyful God. Right? When we, we heard the youth tell us stories about it a few weeks ago, when one sinner repents, when one lost sheep is found, when the coin for the lady that doesn't have many coins, when she finds her coin, this all results in joy, not just for the people, but for God, right? Luke tells us there's more rejoicing in heaven. The angels are rejoicing. The saints are rejoicing. The archangels, all the stuff we can't see. There's all kinds of rejoicing happening. When people turn to God, when people serve one another, when we choose worship over self-salvation, There's a wonder that enters into our lives. And, and we begin to approach the world, not just God, as grateful recipients. So I've been asking myself, you know, do I, is this kind of joy produced in my life? You know, do people look at me and say, oh man, that guy's definitely a disciple because there's a genuine joy there. He seems to know that in spite of all the brokenness that we live in, that there's some reason for joy. And more often than not, I think I come across as the grumpy old man. This is part of our sanctification. This is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. is taking us, molding us, shaping us, giving us the kind of joy that makes it seem like we're the champions, because we are. Now, we're champions of a very different story than the world tells. 
So it doesn't always look the same. Joy doesn't always mean streamers and banners and my Pinterest post is better than your Pinterest post. But genuine joy, the real deal, it looks different for us because our king looks different. And as we wrap up and as we come and take communion together, and as these young disciples own their faith and stand before God and all of us and say, yeah, I'll do that, we consider the kind of king that we worship. The pilgrim story, the procession into Jerusalem, the fact that we're having to, you know, walk a little bit to get there, the journey of Lent, the journey of Christianity, this whole deal is a good chance to take inventory. You know how it is when you're on a long trip, you're on a long road trip, you're on a long hiking trip, you have a lot of time to think. You have a lot of time to consider, to reflect on your motives, to reflect on why we do what we do and why we are who we are. Palm Sunday is a great time to take inventory. What are my motives for following Jesus? What are my motives for continuing to claim the name Christian? What are my motives as I stand here with all the other disciples and praise God? Will I continue to choose to follow this king, the humble king who comes to us on the back of a young colt, back of a donkey? Or do I still have illusions of Christ coming in and fixing things and setting things right the way I want things to be right, the way I think they should be done, just like the world works day to day? Christ comes to us. Whether we're closer to rocks or we're closer to standing there doing exactly what Jesus said because the Lord has need of it, Christ comes to us either way. And he invites us once again to joyfully respond as disciples who have longed for this God since the time we were born. As he meets us, as he satisfies our deepest desires, may we take one more step in his direction because of who he is and because of what he's doing in the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.